Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be finishing up Romans chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 21 of that chapter. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. We'll be finishing Romans chapter 10 today, so you can turn to Romans chapter 10, verse 14. That's where we left off. In the previous section, which we spent a couple of studies on, Paul wrote about the accessibility of the righteousness that is by faith. He said back in verse 8, quote, The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim, unquote. Then in verses 11 through 13, he cited some verses from the Old Testament which speak about this accessibility. First, in verse 11, Paul says, As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Then in verses 12 and 13, Paul wrote, The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Unquote. This leads directly into verses 14 and 15, where Paul poses some questions about the accessibility of this righteousness by faith. Now, we've seen Paul use this style of writing many places in the book of Romans, where he poses questions and then he answers them. In fact, this style is used throughout the book. We find it in every chapter up to this point, except for chapters 1 and 5. It's almost as if Paul is having a dialogue with an imaginary companion. His imaginary companion asks a question, and Paul answers it. Many times, these questions are questions that we ourselves may ask as we're reading through what Paul writes. Paul anticipates the sorts of questions or issues that we may bring up, and then he answers those questions. Those questions are what I would term informational questions, questions intended to get information in order to clear things up. Many other times, Paul poses these questions as questions that an objector might have. Paul says something, someone has a problem with what he says or disagrees with what Paul says, and so asks a question of of objection, which challenges something that Paul said. So the question for us is, as we're studying a passage where where we run across this question answer style of writing, The question for us becomes, are these informational questions or questions of objection? Well, the best way to tell this is to examine how Paul answers the questions. Does he supply information which clarifies things for the asker of the question? Or does he reject the premise of the question and negatively answer the question? So that's what we'll do with the questions in verse 14 and 15. We'll examine how Paul addresses the questions in order to determine whether they are being asked by an objector or by someone just seeking information. So let's consider these things as we study this passage. Let's first read the entire passage and then see if we can make sense of it. We'll be reading Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 21. Quote, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. 
For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Let me be honest with you. I struggled with the interpretation of this passage quite a bit. As usual, I read numerous commentaries on the passage, and they were kind of all over the place as far as interpretation goes. And there was disagreement about how to read the various questions in the passage, not only the questions in verses 14 and 15, but also those throughout the passage. The commentators weren't even in agreement about which questions were objections and which questions were informational or rhetorical in nature. And then, concerning verse 18, absolutely none of the commentators saw what I saw was going on with that verse, and and we'll talk about that. Anyway, it was tough going, trying to get my mind around what was going on here, so I was struggling a bit. And then, one thing I noticed while studying this was that it looked to me like there could be a chiastic structure in this passage. Recall, we talked about chiastic structures a couple of weeks ago, and we laid out that structure for verses 8 through 13. A chiastic structure is where you have kind of a pyramid of thoughts. It looks something like this, subject A, subject B, subject C, and then subject C prime, which is parallel with subject C, subject B prime, which is parallel with subject B, and then subject A prime, which is parallel with subject A. So it goes like a pyramid. The first subject is parallel to the last one, and then the second to the second to last, and the third one to the third to last. Um, Again, as we talked about before, there are um, versions of this study that include the PowerPoint slides on YouTube and on scripturestudies.com. If you have those, it's a little easier to follow probably what I'm talking about because I have a slide about, which gives us a kind of pictorial representation of what I'm trying to explain here. Anyway, these structures aren't limited to three levels. They can be just two levels, the the simplest chiastic structure, or six levels, or a dozen levels. So a six-level structure would go A, B, C, D, E, F, and then unravel itself with a F prime, E prime, D prime, C prime, B prime, A prime. Uh, Chiastic structures are found throughout the Bible, and and we talked about how they can be used to help us interpret passages. For one thing, a chiastic structure will tell you where the author is putting emphasis, for the most part. In chiastic structures, the emphasis is usually on the center of the, the structure, the middle of it, the two parallel statements in the center of it. Let me show you again a simple chiastic structure that we looked at a couple of studies ago in a passage that most of us are familiar with. Let's read Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, unquote. 
Now, let's lay out this verse so that we can see the chiastic structure better, as I've done on the slide in the slideshow. I'll try to explain it for you audio listeners. Subject A is the phrase, no one can serve two masters, and that's parallel to the last subject, or last phrase in the uh, passage, you cannot serve both God and money. No one can serve two masters. That's clearly parallel to the statement, you cannot serve both God and money. Then the next phrase, either you will hate the one, is parallel to the second to last phrase, and despise the other. Both are speaking about hating or despising. And then the center of the structure is, and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one. Both about loving the master. Anyway, notice how subjects A and A prime, B and B prime, C and C prime are parallel to each other. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how normally, I think for most of us, when we read this verse, we're focused on, you know, no one will serve two masters part, the first, you know, phrase in the, the verse, because that's how, you know, Westerners or English speaking people look at things. I mean, a lot of times in writing, the first phrase is the one to put emphasis on. But according to the chiastic structure, the emphasis is on the center. So what's at the center here? Well, we have the center, which focuses on love. Which master will you love? You'll love the other or will be devoted to the one. So the emphasis is which master you love. So Jesus is basically saying, we can't serve two masters. But his emphasis, based on the chiastic structure, his emphasis is on what we love, the master that we love, and that's the important thing. What we love is what will be our master. Because I can say all I want, uh, well, I'm a servant of God, I obey God, I serve God, he's my master. But if I actually love money over God, well then, I'm not a servant of God, really. I'm a servant to money. So we see, recognizing the chiastic structure can actually help us to interpret a passage. Given this, as I read and studied verses 14 through 21 in Romans, I began to suspect that there is a chiastic structure in this passage. The clues for me to this were the repetition of some of the terms. You know, I noticed the how how can they hear is um, parallel with the the question in verse 18, uh, did they not hear? So, Verse 10, sorry, verse 14, how can they hear? Parallel to verse 18, did they not hear? And then in the middle, there's the, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news in verse 15. And then verse 16, but not all Israelites accepted the good news. Good news, good news, parallel, clearly. Then there's in verse 15, and and how can anyone preach unless they are sent? And then there's a phrase in verse 17 about hearing the word of Christ, you know, the result of being preached to. So um, I noticed there were parallels in the passage. So I, you know, started to lay out the chiastic structure in the passage. Um, And what I think I found is a five-level chiastic structure where, where Paul asks four questions. And then at the center has the statements about the good news and then proceeds to answer each of the four questions in reverse order. So we have, in my opinion, at least a five-level chiastic structure. Subject A, B, C, D, which are those four questions at the beginning of our passage. Then that center part, which is uh, the the two phrases about the good news, how, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news in the center. And then not all of the Israelites accepted the good news, and then unraveling, you have 
answers to each of the four questions in reverse order in order to, you know, follow the chiastic structure. So let's lay that out and see if you can agree with this. So on the slide, if you have the slides, I've laid that out. As I talk to it, we'll start in the center because in a chiastic structure, the center contains the emphasis. So given the structure, the emphasis is on the good news and the fact that not all of the Israelites accepted the good news. This center, as I said, is the emphasis, which means that that's the theme of the passage. How beautiful are those who preach the good news, yet not all the Israelites accepted the good news. So then, the whole flow of this structure, as I see it, is verse 14 and 15. The children of Israel are posing these questions, which are really making excuses for why they couldn't believe in Christ. They say, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? That's like an excuse that they're making, as if to say to God, hey, God, you know, we can't call on someone we haven't believed in. Then they ask, well, how can we believe in someone we haven't heard? And then they ask, how can we hear without someone preaching to us? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? So as I read this, and as some of the other scholars read this, these are questions of the of objection by the Jews. They're objecting to what Paul had previously written about the, you know, how accessible the gospel is. And so they're they're retorting to that by asking these questions, saying, hey, it's not accessible. Look at look at all these problems. You know, how can we call on someone we have not believed in? How can we believe in someone we haven't heard of? How can we hear unless someone preaches to us? How can they preach unless they are sent? Those are their excuses for not, you know, accepting the good news, as it says in the middle. So now, let's look at each question and answer from the middle going out because that's the order that the questions are answered in verses 17 through 21. So we have the question, how can they preach? Um, And the answer is, as I see it, it's not so much the preaching that is the problem, but the hearing. For Paul answers that question by saying, well, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ in verse 17. In other words, the children of Israel are saying that there's a lack of preaching. But Paul is saying that the problem lie in the listening, not in the lack of preaching. A preacher won't do you any good if you don't listen. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Then moving on out, they ask, how can they hear? Paul answers that in verse 18. They did hear, or did they not hear? Of course they did. Let's look at this one more closely. Paul's answer here is quite surprising in my opinion. In fact, it was kind of revelatory. I had an amazing epiphany through Paul's answer to this. And if you look at it, it's quite an amazing answer. Again, the children of Israel ask, how can they hear? And Paul answers quite directly. Did they not hear? Of course they did. And then Paul gives a proof from the Old Testament that says, effectively, everyone has access to hear about the righteousness that comes from faith. Paul says, quote, their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world, unquote. Given this quote, the question becomes, who is the they here? Paul says, their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. So whose voice is it? And, and whose words are they? 
Well, to figure that out, we need to go back to the Old Testament passage that Paul is citing here. This citation comes from Psalm 19, and that's what floored me. Let's turn to Psalm 19 and see what's going on in that psalm. I'll read Psalm, by the way, this psalm is very familiar to probably most of you. I'll read Psalm 19 verses 1 through 4. Quote, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world." Paul's speaking here about the natural revelation of God. The they in these verses from the original context is the heavens and the earth. In fact, Psalm 19 is pretty much the go-to passage in the Bible concerning the fact that God reveals himself through his creation to everyone on earth. Just as Paul cites, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So given that, let's go back to the original objecting question and then Paul's answer to it. The children of Israel asked in verse 14, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And Paul's answer to them in verse 18 is, let's read the whole answer here. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In other words, Paul is saying, they can hear without someone preaching to them. And then Paul gives an example of this. The example of God's natural revelation of himself, which, quote, has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world, unquote. Given all this, to me what Paul is saying here is that God finds a way to get his message out, even without someone preaching to them. The children of Israel were trying to make the excuse that many haven't heard because no one was preaching to them. And Paul turns around and says, effectively, God gets his message out, whether through preachers or through nature or or through just the Holy Spirit speaking right into someone's heart. God gets his message out. It isn't a problem of getting the message out. It's a problem of believing in the message, just as Paul stated in verse 16, which is the core of this structure. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Now, just for full disclosure, I am in the minority here concerning my interpretation of this passage. The majority of scholars interpret verse 18 as Paul saying that at that time the preaching of the gospel was widespread and so the Jews had no excuse not to hear it. But my problem with that interpretation at that time was, well, had the message gone out into all the earth back in those days, back in the time when Paul was writing the book of Romans, and had it gone out to the ends of the world? Could Paul really mean that? All the earth and to the ends of the world. At the time Paul was writing the book of Romans, could could that be what Paul was saying? I don't think so. In fact, later in the book of Romans, Paul talks about how he wants to go to Spain in order to preach the gospel where it had not yet been preached. Let's look at that passage in Romans chapter 15. First he writes in Romans 15:20, quote, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. And then down in verse 22, he says, quote, This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you, unquote. So Paul is saying that he had not yet visited Rome because the gospel was already preached there. 
There was no reason to go there because Paul wanted to go to places where the gospel had not been preached, to go where Christ was not known. Then, next in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 15, Paul says this, quote, But now that there is no more place for for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while." So clearly, the meaning of all this is that Paul was going to Spain because that was a place where the gospel had not yet been preached. So back here in Romans chapter 10, How could Paul be saying in verse 18 that the preaching of the gospel had already gone out to the ends of the earth? It hadn't, and Paul knew that. Given all this, I don't see how scholars can interpret verse 18 as Paul saying that the gospel had been preached to the ends of the earth. Moreover, if Paul was using Psalm 19 in that way, that would totally be contradicting the whole point of Psalm 19, from which from which Paul took the verses about, you know, all the earth and the ends of the world. The theme of Psalm 19 is given in the first verse of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. The whole theme of Psalm 19 is that God makes himself known to us. He doesn't need people to make himself known. He can use the heavens and the skies if uh, he so wanted to. Now, Thank God he does use us. I'm not saying this to downplay the work of missionaries. Their work is exceedingly valuable and important. Don't get me wrong here. God does absolutely use missionaries and and preachers to spread the gospel message. And, And they do great work. And it's an absolute privilege for them to do that great work. They shine the light on the truth of the gospel, proclaiming the salvation available through Christ. That's great and important work. But Paul's point here is God doesn't need the missionaries. God doesn't need the preachers to get his word out. He'll get his word out. He has ways. Anytime we get the thought in our minds that God needs us, well, anytime we think that, we kind of need a reality check. God needs us? No, be serious. The all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent God who has at his disposal not only all the tools and resources of everything in the entire universe, but also the power of the Holy Spirit through whom all these things were made. Now, so God somehow needs us. He can't get his message out without us. Think, think again. Have some humility. So, I do reject that interpretation of verse 18. And I stand by mine, which, by the way, is the more straightforward reading of the text. My interpretation follows the simple reading of the words on the page. And again, in verse 14, the children of Israel asked in an objecting tone, they asked, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And Paul's answer to them is in verse 18. And it's effectively, of course they heard. God gets his message out. God has ways, even without preachers, to get his message out. Quote, their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Paul says a similar thing in the book of Colossians, in a verse that's often glossed over. Let's read Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Quote, But now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, 
established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant." Unquote. What? <laughs> what did he say? Gospel, gospel proclaimed to every creature under heaven? Really? Now, most scholars gloss over this verse and say that Paul is using hyperbole, that he's exaggerating for effect. But that doesn't make sense here. There are times when hyperbole makes sense, and there are times when it doesn't. Let me give you an example. Let's pretend that I live in Newport Beach. Now, Newport Beach is a really fancy area in Southern California, Orange County, near where I grew up. I didn't grow up in Newport Beach. I grew up, a, you know, I don't know, 10 miles or so from it in a, in a not as nice area, let me say. But let me tell you, most people in Orange County do want to live in Newport Beach. It's a very nice area. Anyway, let's pretend that I live in Newport Beach, which is quite an affluent area. So my friend comes and visits me from the Midwest or whatever, and we're walking around, and he's like, wow, this is a nice area. And then I say, yeah, everyone here is basically a millionaire in Newport Beach. Now, that would be hyperbole. It's not literally true that everyone in Newport Beach is a millionaire, but it's close enough to being true. And if you walk around Newport Beach, you know, you, you can almost believe that it's true because there are a lot of nice cars and nice houses, etc. So if I say everyone's a millionaire, basically, in Newport Beach, that's hyperbole that makes sense. Now let's look at hyperbole that doesn't make sense. Let's say we have the same situation. I'm still living in Newport Beach. I guess I'll hang on to that as long as I can. Anyway, my friend comes over and he says the same thing. He says, wow, this is a nice area that you live in. And then I say this, well, basically everyone on earth is a millionaire. Well, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense as hyperbole because it's not even close to be being true. Not even close to, you know, everyone on earth is a millionaire. So it's hyperbole that doesn't make any sense. And we have the same thing in Colossians 1.23 where Paul says, This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Paul couldn't be talking about the gospel being preached to every person on earth, you know, every creature under heaven, because at Paul's time, that wasn't even close to being true. So even as hyperbole, that interpretation makes no sense. A better interpretation of this verse, in my strong opinion, is that Paul is saying that God gets his message out. Simple as that. God makes sure that every person on earth has an opportunity in some way or another to respond to the gospel in some form or another. That's what I believe this verse and the ones back in Romans chapter 10 are saying. And by the way, that's the most straightforward reading of Colossians 1.23. The gospel has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. That's exactly what the verse says. Well, we're running a bit short of time. Let's get to the rest of the answers that Paul provides to the objections to the questions in verses 14 and 15. We've already covered three of the five chiastic steps in this passage. We saw Paul's response to the statement, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And, and certainly that statement is true. The preaching of the gospel is a beautiful thing. But the problem is, as Paul says in verse 16, not all the Israelites accepted the good news. That's the middle of the chiastic structure. And thus the 
the point of emphasis of the whole thing. Not all the Israelites accepted the good news. So then the objector asks, how can anyone preach unless they are sent? And Paul's answer to that question is, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In other words, the problem isn't in the preaching, but in the hearing, the listening. If we don't listen, no amount of preaching will do us any good. Then as we continue to move out in the chiastic structure, we saw the question, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And Paul's answer is, just as we looked at just now, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In other words, Paul's saying, God gets his word out to everyone. So then moving on, the objector asks, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And Paul's answer to that is in verse 19 as we move out in the chiastic structure. Paul says in that verse, again I ask, did Israel not understand? In other words, they have understood enough to have faith. They have enough information to believe. So so this question they're asking, how can they believe in the one of whom they had not heard? Paul's answer is, did they not understand? They have enough, again, they have enough information to believe. That's no excuse. Rather, the problem is that in their stubbornness, they chose not to believe. That, I think, is the essence of what Paul says next in verse 19. Quote, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding, unquote. The children of Israel wanted to keep their Messiah to themselves. By and large, they didn't want salvation to come to the Gentiles. And so, rather than believing in the Messiah themselves, they were envious and angry. Envious that the salvation of Christ had come to the Gentiles, and angry because they wanted to keep this gospel, this salvation to themselves. I think that's what Paul's getting at in verse 19. And then finally, the answer to the first question in verse 14 is found in verse 20. The first question from verse 14 is, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? Paul's answer is in verse 20, as I said. Let's read it and see if we can figure out what's going on here. Quote, And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people." Unquote. I think what Paul is saying here is that the children of Israel could have called on the name of the Lord if they wanted to. Proof of this is that the Gentiles did respond to the call of God. I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Those verses are speaking about the Gentiles. The Gentiles weren't looking for a Messiah. But they're the ones, by and large, who found him. And, and that's not God's fault, as Paul says next. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a dis disobedient and obstinate people. Unquote. It's kind of a sad and tender picture. God holding out his hands to his chosen people. And then they, his chosen people, by and large, rejecting his son, whom he sent to save them. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. I think that's all we have time for today. My apologies for the technical nature of what we talked about, the literary devices and all that. Again, this is my view of the passage, and I, I think that I've given you, you know, the evidence of why I interpret it this way, the, the chiastic structure and everything. To me, 
This is the interpretation that makes the most sense given the context of everything written here and the way Paul wrote it. Others have different views, which is fine. That's why we come to Bible studies to wrestle with God about this stuff, grabbing onto him like Jacob did and not letting go until he gives us a blessing. That's how I view the deep study of the Bible at times, especially when faced with difficult passages like the one we looked at today. You know, I'm not letting you go until you give me a blessing, just as Jacob did. And God does. God, I found, always blesses a deep and concentrated study of his word. Again, at least that's what I found in my studies. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, dot com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling, all rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.